I'm a handshake and tape. I'm a spud with a plane. I'm a miracle that's created day by day. I ain't your average quitter. I don't put up with golf. I'm doing the best I can. The drum tater. Welcome to Path Forward Utah with uh, Bob McEntee, and we're going to be discussing uh, local Utah uh, laws and happenings in the in the Republican Party, and just other newsworthy topics of the day, as well as some national. And uh, let's start with one that's kind of both. You know, uh, boy, we've heard a lot about shootings this week, haven't we? And and it appears as soon as we hear about a shooting, I mean, be, I hate to say it, but before the bodies are cold. Boom, legislation. Let's control the guns. Let's control the bullets. Let's tax this. Let's make, let's make, uh, we're not going to make like knife makers responsible for what happens with a knife, but we're going to make gun makers responsible for what happens with it. Just, you know what? The Democrats are in charge and a lot in their party, they want gun control and some don't, which, which is good. Uh, but it, it's one of those um, delineations between Republican and Democrat. Now, traditionally, many Democrats would have been totally on board you know, with the defending the Second Amendment. Uh, and stay tuned toward the end of the show. I'm going to give you the tip that tells you how to be the smartest guy in the room on uh, any Congress, um, constitutional subject. You know, when people start talking guns, well, the Ninth Circuit Court just ruled that, oh, you know what? There's no right to self-defense. I mean, a cat has claws, right? Can we imply the cat is allowed to use the claws for self-defense, right? Or other other stuff. But somehow... The Ninth Circuit has decided that all, all the Western states, you know, California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, they're all in the Ninth Circuit. We're not, thankfully. But they just said, you don't have the right to self-defense. Now, what, what did our founding fathers really mean? Is it really just about a militia? Because that's what the word says. Well, there's a way you can find out what exactly did our founders think, mean, and intend. And are the courts referencing that? Or do the courts have... A different agenda. So you're going to have to trust someone to preserve your God-given rights, right? But let's get back to just people, right? I want to talk about a lot of these shooters, you know, they're, they're, they're messed up people, right? I mean, they are. They, they get too angry, or they're a little, little crazy. They don't have those right filters that some of us have where you want to do a bad thing, but then you're like, no, no, that's not the right thing. Well, let's start with something positive, that kindness is a healer. A lot of these if it's a school shooting, a lot of these kids have been edged out. You know, they've, they've been made fun of. And, and, you know, I understand. Maybe maybe they don't seem to deserve much more. I get it. Maybe they're loners. Maybe they're a little bit weird. But I'll tell you what, just a small kindness can still be a healer. And it calms people down. You know, when you're nice to someone, you show respect for them. And I, I think we need to remember that. And I'm going to make a point here that I hear a lot of people talk about rights and stuff. But what is the morality of a shooter that shoots Men, women, and children in a grocery store, like just happened, you know, this last week or so in Boulder, Colorado. And Colorado's been hit by mass shootings before. But why did this guy do that? Well, I'll tell you this. And he was a Syrian immigrant. And and we've done some bombings in Syria, right? So I don't know if he was touched off about what we're doing to his his home of Syria, or if if he's just filled with hate because people weren't nice to him and he didn't get a date to prom or whatever. I don't know what the deal was. But but we know he was uh, from Syria, probably Islamic. You know, they may look at life different. But I'm going to make this point that I don't hear many people making. 
when the Bible was allowed in public schools and, and they didn't teach it, they just let the students read from it now and then, like maybe at homeroom for a few minutes. My mother actually went to public school in Massachusetts. And when she was a young girl in high school, um, they would let the child choose which, which Old Testament you know, chapter they wanted to read or just a little selection, usually from like something like Psalms or Proverbs. And they, they used the Old Testament because it was agreeable to the, to the Jewish children, the Catholic, the Protestant, they all, nobody was going to object it, you know, if you read from the Old Testament. And so they would do that. The children would choose a section to read, they would read it. it no one preached on it or expounded. They just, they just read it, right? Of course, the Word of God says that it has power and it goes forth. And simple prayers were allowed, uh, usually teacher-led. Uh, but they were, they were, you know what, I'm going to read you in a minute the prayer that got banned, the one that went to the Supreme Court. And got, I want you to use your judgment. Tell me who is this prayer going to hurt, right? Because it's usually just that less than 1% takes some of these cases to the Supreme Court when the 99% are, hey, that's fine if they pray. But back to my point is, you know, when the Bible was read in schools, simple prayers were allowed in public schools, how many school shootings were there? Go ahead, think. Give me a guess. Well, the answer is none, ever. In fact, I know another gentleman that he said, you know, when they came to school in the morning, they would put their shotguns in the coat closet. And that was fine because they were going to go shooting after school, right? So they didn't want to have to walk home and get their shotgun and then go shoot some ducks or something. No. And that was in Washington State, which is now a lot more liberal. How come you could trust kids then? How come a bunch of kids weren't on the all these medicines, right? How come they weren't all ADHD? And I look at, I think our food supply is different. I don't, I don't trust what vaccines do to people. And I don't, I don't like the fact that they don't get at least some injection, even if they're not required to believe it, but of a common morality. Because reading the Bible is a common morality. And that's, what, that's why Western society is kind of founded on that. Western Europe, uh, America, even Canada, Mexico to some degree. You know, when, when this is allowed, it creates its own limits. People realize, well, even if they're not the best people, like, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't kill, I shouldn't steal. It gets in their heads, right? Then we have a common morality. And then you don't need your guns as much either, by the way. And then we can be kind to one another because that's a lot of what the Bible says. But let, let's look at that. So what, what were these prayers that were banned? You know, because they seem to have a preventative effect. There was no such thing as a school shooting. Like when I was a kid in school, no such worry. We worried about nuclear attack. We didn't worry about our own citizens shooting up schools or fellow school children. So here's, here's the New York State school prayer that went to the Supreme Court in 1962. And uh, listen quick, because it's, it's not a long one. Here's what the teachers led the students in. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Wow, that's it, like one sentence. Doesn't take up a lot of time, right? Uh, takes up less time than a shooting drill, I would make the case for. And, and when we did this in school, this simple little prayer that we acknowledge God, we ask for his blessings, and, and we recognize kind of the authority figures in life too, that, that the parents, teachers, and our country, that raises the esteem of all those things, right? And now there's not as much esteem for any of those. And the teachers maybe have forgotten their place that they are examples, right? You don't want to see pictures of your teacher in, a, in, a, in some porn movie like has happened or, you know, they were respectable. And they, these kind of prayers lifted them up. And I think we need it. But look at that little one sentence prayer, prevented school shootings. But 
we want to let the radicals have their way. The 99% doesn't get to say, hey, we want we want prayer in school. We want, we want them to be able to read the Bible, you know, and uh, maybe you would have to open up to other other things too and let the children choose. But I'm just going to point this out. You know, there's, there's other ways besides a gun grab. And remember, I'm going to make you smart in the last segment and tell you how do you become the smartest guy in the room? How do you read the minds of the founding fathers? Where can you go today in one quick Google search or even on YouTube and get those, get the correct answers, not an opinion? Well, we're going to study that. Now, speaking of Europe, because I kind of referenced on the last new topic, vaccine liberty. So here we're talking, there's talk about vaccine passports, right? And oh, by the way, remember these vaccines are experimental. Okay. I saw a funny meme where there's two mice and the one mouse, one mouse asked the other, he says, hey, did you get your vac- vaccination yet? The mouse says, no, they're not done testing it on humans yet. Because these are experimental. They're not, they're only approved for quote, emergency use. They're not FDA approved. And Europe took note of this. Why is Europe more sensitive on this? Well, you know, they, Europe still remembers the horrific medical experiments Nazis did upon Jews. Oh, how how cold does someone have to be before they die in icy water? Well, let's throw some Jews in the water. And I don't mean this, but this is what they did. This is what the Nazis did. This is why they're hated. They did these kind of cruel experiments on men, women, and children. Oh, how much blood do you have to lose before you die? Oh, I don't know. Stab one of the prisoners, right? Horrible things. Well, that's why Europe is a little more sensitive about medical experiments because they realized these are experimental vaccines. And they said, no, the, the European Council passed a resolution said you may not uh, mandate experimental vaccines. In fact, you may not mandate or coerce. And that's the danger here that I see in America is the coercion. You want to stay at our hotel, fly our airplanes, eat our restaurant. We want you to have a vaccine. Well, sorry, we're not your guinea pig. And I think the Council of Europe has shown great leadership. They did that in January of this year, 2021, uh, Resolution 2361. If you just Google it, you're going to find references. And they're, they're not actually a government, the Council of Europe. They're like a recommending body, but the, the EU member states usually do listen to them. We'll talk a little bit more about vaccine liberty after the break. And then later at the midpoint in the show, we're going to have a guest on talk about um, his ethics proposals. We'll talk about that after the break on Path Forward Utah. Uh, Bob McAtee talking about Utah and national current events. And we were talking about vaccine liberty, um, the fact that Europe seems to be kind of leading the way for individuals. Now, the United States, the government doesn't usually mandate these things, except maybe for your school kids. Usually they can get out of it, but not every state. And but we see Europe leading out to say, you know what, we, we don't want people being guinea pigs. These are experimental. Uh, no. And people should know that these mRNA vaccines, they, they actually change what your DNA does. That's kind of a big deal. The Russian so-called Sputnik vaccine doesn't do that. 
neither does the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. They're they're different. They're they're not they're not changing how your DNA works. Um, but nonetheless, Europe's leading out and saying, look, this needs to be just citizens just need to decide for themselves, even though they have a kind of a bad COVID problem over there. Um, not with high death rates, but you know, people are still worried about it. But but I'm glad that the Council of Europe has kind of let out, and they and they did make that remark that meta, medical experiments, which is how they see these unproven vaccines, are prohibited by the Nuremberg Convention. Wow, that's going back to World War II and nasty experiments on prisoners of war and, and Jewish people that the Nazis did. That's why we have the Nuremberg Convention, um, and it's it's fresh in Europe's memory. We've had a little bit of that stuff go on here. The, the federal government did test um, syphilis on people without telling them they're giving them that because I don't think too many people are going to sign up for that, right? And then then their spouse is going to be a little suspicious of, well, gosh, why did you give me syphilis? What's going on here? Well, sometimes governments do bad things, you know, and I'm not saying this vaccine is intended to harm, but we don't know what's going to happen. Tell you what, um, I've got a guest coming on with me today. We're going we're gonna to roll him in here early. And stay with them as long as, as long as the materials, you know, we want to cover. And great, I'm sure it's going to be great, because we've got coming up in the next uh, couple months, we've got the Utah GOP state and county conventions. So we've got the the one state convention and the 29 county conventions where the party leadership <coughs> is elected. What do you really know about your party leaders? You know, in fact, the current popular chair of the Utah Republican Party, which is a rather powerful position. Um, Mr. Derek Brown, you know, he's both a lawyer as well as a lobbyist. Did you know that? Did the delegates know that he was a paid professional lobbyist when they elected him? I don't think most did, right? They usually in Utah, we go off the nice index. He seems like a nice guy. I'm going to, is he LDS? Okay. He seems like a nice guy. I'm going to vote for him, right? That's kind of usually the checklist I see. Or maybe I see delegates look at another smart delegate and go, hey, um, should I vote for this guy? And someone says yes. Someone says no. They kind of, they kind of, you know, herd each other into different directions. And and we've got new candidates this year. I'm going to, I'm going to bring my guest on. Bill, are you, are you with us this morning, Mr. Olson? I'm here, Bob. Can you hear me? I hear you. Great. Thank you. Um, so let's let's get talking about you had an idea that maybe we need a little bit more disclosure in the Republican Party for for those we're going to elect, uh, just like the legislature has some some amount of disclosure they have to do. So what how did you how did you research this and what, what do you what do you recommend the party do? Well, first of all, Bob, I was awfully surprised when I investigated and found out that Although many state Republican uh, organizations have ethics codes and ethics committees, the state of Utah doesn't. Our legislature doesn't. Our party doesn't. And the problem that you have, uh, I mean, the purpose of an ethics code and a committee is to enforce all of the governing rules of the party equally among its members. The challenge of enforcing any ethical violations uh, and according to Robert's Rules of Order, as established in our rules, uh, is to have a committee in place. In other words, have the um, the infrastructure of, of promoting ethics. Uh, members of the party or the state central committee would provide a disclosure statement. And those disclosure statements would basically have them disclose any organizations that they're uh, generating revenue more of more than $1,200 annually. 
And the whole idea of that is to keep it very confidential within the ethics committee, but simply these disclosure statements will at least give information about who is doing business with who and whether or not uh, they have a potential conflict of interest by serving the needs of the party on its uh, policymaking body. Um, I can tell you that uh, the big surprise for me in researching all of these Republican state organization uh, ethics platforms, one, one of, probably one of the best and most um, uh, complete was Chicago's, <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's a state where the Republican Party doesn't do much, right? That's um, true. But I think I, I think it's fundamental to the success of our uh, Republican system of government that that all candidates, elected officials, and especially party members and party leaders at all levels of government be independent and impartial. Well, and that would they place. Can, can, oh, go can ahead. I pause you? You're 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 a good train to let run. And I but I just want to break <laughs> in with a question because I kind of want to establish for the listeners that have you ever you know been required to make ethical disclosures or financial disclosures? Have you? Uh, I mean, I know you're not a homeless person, but I don't think everyone knows your background. Can you give us just a little bit of background so they know that you've got experience here? Yeah, so so I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, but I spent the last five years of my career before I retired as a CEO of a molecular diagnostic company. And of course, as a, as a chief executive officer of a private company, my responsibility was to write the strategic plan, build the executive team, execute on uh, what the board of directors have approved, and then be held completely responsible for whatever goes wrong. Okay. Now, I can tell you as a CEO, there's a little thing called a fiduciary duty, and that is a almost of it can be identified as almost any kind of behavior that somebody doesn't like. And so as a CEO, you're subject to uh, fiduciary duty obligations 10 years later, okay, if, if under your control, certain things happen. So what happens in, the, in that situation is that you're conscientious about every decision you make. Also, to be approved uh, by the board of directors to be a CEO, there's massive amounts of disclosure that you have to put out there. And, and it's, it's primarily, Bob, to anticipate any potential conflicts of interest. And if they are perceived conflicts of interest, then let the ethics committee or the group um, waive a particular uh, potential conflict of interest by submitting a disclosure statement. You don't, you know what I mean? And so yes, it becomes- I do. It becomes it becomes a level playing field for everybody. And most importantly, people like Derek Brown, uh, it would be disclosed to the delegates that he had a career in lobby. OK, and that there's other folks in the legislature and in the party that have you know potential conflicts of interest with respect to transactions being performed, third parties being hired, all kinds of things that even if they they create the the the. Uh, the you know the, it's a potential conflict of interest it's not good for the party so the bottom line is that when you have people running around doing these kinds of things not disclosing what they're doing um then other people claim a conflict of interest there's no there there's no um there's no way of doing that there's no way of holding people accountable in a way that we're all in the same level playing field So on your proposal, Bill, we've got one minute left in this segment and what we can go over in the next, but let's use the current chair as an example. So since he was a professional, you know, paid lobbyist for his job, 
would he have been allowed to run for chair or would he simply have had to disclose that he was the chair? Well, under the ethics um, uh, proposals and constitutional amendment that I proposed as chairman of the uh, ethics committee, a subcommittee of the constitutional bylaw committee when I sat on the SEC, uh, the whole concept of that would be to uh, disclose that he's a lobbyist and be able to at least tell the ethics committee that it won't in interfere with his ability to be chair. But it would be public information, and it, especially to delegates and members of the convention. And then they could make their decisions. Okay. Well, well, that was a good place to stop. We've got just a few seconds before going to the break. And we'll, we'll pick this back up, talk about your proposal, and, and maybe remark on why there is no ethics. So more on Path Forward Utah after the break. today talking about does the Republican Party need an ethics, ethics bylaws, an ethics committee? And we've got, I've got a guest on with me today, former CEO, uh, Mr. Bill Olson, who, who crafted a, really an extensive proposal, uh, the first I've seen, to, to institute ethics requirements, ethics disclosures, and, and maybe even prohibit some people from running uh, while they're doing other things, like being a politician or a legislator. <laughs> So, Bill, let's talk about let's talk about that. You've you've had to make ethical disclosures as a CEO, and I assume you think it's a good thing. And it probably shocked you a little bit when you realized, hey, we don't we don't have any disclosure requirements, right? So, so tell us about who would make this decision if we're going to institute uh, ethics, and has it been proposed before and voted on, and how did that go? Well, my research has told me that a few years ago, the state legislature. Uh, uh, bantied about the idea of having a, an ethics code and an ethics committee, but it was uh, shut down. Uh, they, they just weren't in agreement. And really, um, you know, what, what it's all about is it's an oath of office, it's an ethics code, and an ethics committee. And the idea is not to, um, you know, it's not to govern people as much as it's to allow for a opportunity for people to clear their name if they've been accused of something unethical, or there's an opportunity to ex expose a disclosure statement and a waiver approved by the ethics committee. But here's the here's the deal. Uh, the, the challenge we have as a party, Bob, and you know in, in the state of Utah, is that we have many, many elected officials that are have elected positions or significant positions in, in, with our party leadership. And I would just tell the audience this, that um, as the Republican Party, our role is really to support our platform, vet candidates that support our platform and get them elected and then hold their feet to the fire so that we can uh, support our values and principles. I would argue that when we're successful at that and we get a good, good candidate elected, that their constituency changes immediately. They're no longer, uh, their constituency is no longer just the Republican Party. It's all voting voters in their district, and they're full of Democrats, independents, and Republicans. And what happens with a politician, with a good politician, they pay attention to their district, and they start to moderate. 
as they have to. A perfect example is District 8. We have four distinct economic districts in this district from very, very poor downtown Ogden to very, very wealthy Eden out in the valley. Okay. Now, as one representative serving those that, that you know that district most of the attention is given to the poor elements of the district because government's trying to solve problems okay so what happens is that representative then comes back as an elected member of the party and starts to try to moderate platform positions and party positions and then that that's how i believe our party has wandered into the independent area and hasn't been able to defend its conservative principles and so if we're just realistic about that and and weber county by the way bob as you know we're the only county of 29 counties in utah that does not allow a publicly elected official to have an elected position in the party and that's worked out very well for us we're somewhat independent compared to most of the other counties. Yes. In fact, I'm, I'm glad you made that point because I was on the bylaws committee. Uh, we, we bought that forward at, at one of our, what do you call that? Um, CCCs, one of our uh, county conventions. Thank you. Yes. Um, and we voted on it. And, you know, at the time, the chair of the party was he did not like this idea. Right. Because he wanted to run for office. And we we mandated this that, look, the day you declare for office, you are automatically resigned. We're not going to wait for you to resign. Just you declare, boom, you're no longer the chair, the vice is, right, till we have another election. And that's exactly what happened. And it's no offense on him. It's just that, like you said, we don't want someone kind of double-minded. I'll put it that way with a different constituency. Um, now, sometimes they don't, they don't stray that far from the GOP platform. And maybe on the flip side, the good thing is perhaps some of the, the Democrats kind of lean our way a little bit because they have Republicans in their district, and they would like their vote to rather than to lose. Um, but but I think you make a good point, and, and I'm proud that Weber County was the first to adopt that kind of um, ethics limit. You know, and and we did it without having an ethics committee, which is nice because those can end up like witch hunts. I mean, you may need them, but that sends a chill down my spine when you say ethics committee because people start proposing. What's a violation? But we made it clear in our bylaws. So go ahead, Bill, if you want to comment some more about that. Yeah. So, in fact, in my research, I discovered a case in Davis County, okay, of a of a uh, uh, kind of a rogue. Uh, I don't know if it was chair at a time or uh, an influential member of the party. And um, they were accused of some ethics violations. And then the uh, the the uh, executive committee of the Davis County Republican Party had to deal with what they perceived as an ethics violation. But since they didn't have an ethics code promulgated or published, they didn't have a committee with uh, with uh, with established enforcement policies. Right. In order to protect due process. The problem is, Bob, without organiz organizations in place to address these things, you cannot protect due process. OK, so it turns out to be, you know, a he said, she said, well, he did this, he did that. It's hugely disruptive to the party. These things should be taken care of quietly and enforced by the rules approved by the party. And that becomes everybody's level playing field. It's not a vendetta against anybody. It's not to be used that way. In fact, if you look at the 19 page thesis that I put together in my research, okay, that, that also outlines what the constitutional amendment would look like, um, everything is in place there to be fair. Now, this is not, this is what Bill put together because when I had my subcommittee, a lot of people started not coming. 
Okay. And so I found myself alone in the corner. And so I did most of the research myself, but this is not about Bill Olson or it's not about Bill's ideas. I'm convinced our party needs a platform where we swear to uphold what we believe and our code, uh, uh, says prompt you know says what that is and then our committee is there to deal with what we believe to be perceived violations of those codes with that in place bob i'm convinced most all of us would behave differently well yes bill and i you know i think it's a good point we made here talking about the weber county uh, bylaws were changed to to kind of institute some ethical reforms and maybe sometimes things go from the top down. Sometimes they go from the grassroots up. So I, I would call upon other counties to consider it. You know, we'll send them a copy of our bylaws, you know, no charge. They can look at the simple changes we made, which were kind of step one, right? Right. And the state now, I recall uh, you and I served on the governing body of the, the Utah GOP together, the state central committee. It's about a, roughly 180 people that are able to change the um, bylaws and propose changes to the constitution, which yours was a proposed constitutional change and bylaw changes. So how did your presentation go? How was it received? Uh, did the people vote against an ethics committee or, or proposal? How did that go down? Well, no, I was, uh, they slammed the door on me in the, uh, in the uh, constitutional bylaw committee. Um, they felt that uh, this kind of information and this kind of change needed a lot more, um, uh, time and a lot more discussion and and everything else. So it's 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 the same old roadblocks that come up all the time, you know, when this with this kind of stuff uh, shows up. But uh, so unfortunately, it wasn't like the parliamentarian change that I was able to make through the SEC that got completely trashed at convention. They never put it before the delegates. But that's well, been the problem, you know. But, but I actually, I want to focus on the good news part of that, which is it doesn't really matter what the Constitution Bylaws Committee says. Thankfully, I'm very yeah. thankful that their opinion is just an opinion. But as I recall, you presented it to the SCC. We did, discussed and debated it heartily, and it passed by a two-thirds majority. Do I, do I have that wrong? Yeah, but let's make sure the audience understands that was my uh, dealings with the parliamentarian to make the parliamentarian part of party personnel so okay. the SEC could approve. But the ethics work that I did, I spent about nine months on it, and I worked with uh, Janice Ledger was the uh, uh, the chair of the Constitutional Bylaw Committee at the time. She was in right. total support of my efforts, and so were uh, a very large minority of that uh committee. Uh, unfortunately, they felt that uh, this apple was too big to take a bite out of, you know, with a couple of months, even though we worked on it for a long time, a couple of months prior to convention, they felt that it was too big a bite of the apple and we should pick it up later. So, okay. Well, we've got one minute to land this plane here, Bill. The segment goes quick, but I, I like your proposal and I, I want to quote Greg Hughes. He said, you know, there's some bills that people are afraid to be against. And I think the, the ethics proposal you make should be one of those. And now there's been a change since you on the SEC bill. We instituted in December 2019 that every vote for a constitution bylaws change is a recorded vote. So everybody who voted for or against an ethics proposal would be on record with their vote. And I, I think that's a good way to be. Now, it could be I presented at convention. Uh, although I will tell you, you know, you really, it takes, and when you elect your County people like our Weber County, it's the uh, legislative district chairs. They're the ones that represent you on the SCC. 
And they're the ones, sometimes it takes one guy tucking the football under his arm and running and presenting it, and maybe with a wingman. And Bill and I, we kind of worked that way before on hard and yep. stuff and on this. So it it's important who you like in these. And uh, Bill, I, I hope you'll consider passing this on to a competent person. And we'll pick up uh, other topics and how to be the smartest guy in the room after the break. Welcome back to the final segment of Path Forward Utah with your host, Bob McEntee. And we just got finished discussing, uh, is there a need for an ethics proposal in the Utah GOP? Well, keep watching because now the the GOP has gone from, we're going to have to do the lockdown Zoom conference and see how that goes to, to since the prohibitions are starting to be lifted as of April 10th, the, uh, they just announced yesterday the state GOP convention will be Saturday, May 1st, now in person at the Maverick Center. And so that's that's going to be exciting. It's our first big gathering. Uh, unfortunately, we're using the retread delegates like myself from 2018. Normally, there would be an election in 2020, but there wasn't due to pandemic and nobody quite knew how to handle. Are we going to do in person or Zoom stuff? Or, and they just decided, you know what, we're just going to recycle the delegates. And unfortunately, some of the problem is it's hard to replace people that moved or with the party or passed away. There's been some people replaced, but uh, it's going to be an interesting convention. And my friend Bill there was, was we were just talking that we think we'll bring this ethics proposal forward. Um, and it's not ethics proposal in name only. It's a real one. And and there won't be quite as much time for debate and discussion usually as there is on the SEC. Because yeah, a lot of that's background. A lot of that is emails before a meeting and phone calls and harder to do with the delegates. Um, but all you need is five delegates to sponsor a proposal. So I told him, hey, I'd be glad to be, you know, sponsor ethics. Eth- we need ethics, right? Put me down as a sponsor. I'm happy to do it. Back to now. Now, Mr. Olson was my kind of my wingman on this other thing, right? Because I'm, I'm pretty good at it. But, you know, everyone, when you public speak, you can always forget something or not emphasize it enough. And we kind of ran a proposal through the SEC, uh, a resolution. And then the, then the Utah legislature picked up that resolution and it passed unanimously. Um, it was about hardening the grid. What does harden the grid mean? Well, it means making sure that your electric grid is, is protected from all hazards, right? As much as is reasonably practical, right? So what, what's all hazards? Well, any kind of weather, you know, high winds, extreme heat, extreme cold, um, solar flares, coronal mass ejections, uh, any kind of hissy fit the sun can throw. And you know what? Reading about the history of the sun, you know, since 1859, when we saw like a, a big coronal mass ejection that, that hit the earth very quickly, it was about eight hours from where they spotted it to where it hit the earth. It was super powerful. It created northern lights you could see all the way down to Panama. And it, it actually twisted railroad lines. The, the metal, because that absorbs the energy from the sun, it twisted some of those. Just amazing amount of power go try to bend a railroad you know part of the railroad good luck because you're not going to do it but anyway but the sun did that and so if the sun were to to do that again it would fry our delicate right but you can protect it like the military has protected their nuclear enterprise right our our go to strategic war bombers tankers missiles submarines they're all ready for a a solar event like that 
or nuclear weapons going off creates the same problem. Um, now, Texas, they got hit by this, not from the sun, because if, it, if the sun hit their grid and destroyed it, it would still be out, right? It would take it would take over a year to put it back together, right? Maybe there'd be some small isolated places where they could run a little local grid, but the big grid would be down and power would be very expensive if you could get it. Um, and, and, you know, let's compare. So we saw one, one Syrian immigrant here shoots 10 people in a grocery store and boom, there's federal legislation. We gotta, we gotta get the guns. We gotta control the guns. Well, 111 people died in Texas from the grid down. Where's the federal legislation for that? There is none, right? There actually was in 2010, and it passed Nancy Pelosi's Congress unanimously to harden the grid in 2010 for about, uh, the estimate was 2 to $4 billion. They could protect the grid from the sun and from nuclear events. Um, it passed the House unanimously, got gutted, and killed in the Senate. That, that was a disgrace, really, I think. And I can tell you who did it. Just ask me. But... But we've got another shot here. That was our warning shot. The Texas grid going down with 111 deaths and the death toll still rising. They're still discovering people, uh, still attributing deaths to, you know, what was because the grid shut down and it was only shut down a short time. We're not talking weeks or months. It was down for a few days. People start dying. They don't have heat. They don't have clean water or running water. It's just horrendous. Um, now I, I got a newsletter from the CEO of a, a Utah power company. And he's saying, you know what? Because California, when they build new homes, they're not allowing the new homes to use natural gas to heat them, right? They have to use electricity. So they, boom, the demand for electricity goes up. And gas is very expensive in California and they've been pushing elect electric vehicles. So people have electric vehicles there, but they have to charge them. So what, what California has done, and they've also disallowed coal. They said you can't have coal-fired uh, you know, power plants here. So what they've done is they, they pulled down how much power you can make, and they've raised the electrical requirements. So can you see that's, that's like there's going to be an electricity budget problem, right? We're, we're going we're gonna to have deficit electricity. And it's not like the national deficit where you can just gloss it over and paper debt and we'll pay it someday maybe. No. You know, if you don't have enough electricity to run your grid, your grid goes down. And if you don't take it down, it shuts itself down, and it's 24 hours before you can restart it. And what he projects is that because we've increased this kind of volatile energy, like solar power, wind power, which is great, but it tends to die down in the evening, just as electricity demand peaks, you know, because your your roof is like max hot, six, 5 or 6 p.m. in the summer. That's when your maximum heat is built up on your house. When you need that AC and you're starting to cook and watch TV and all that stuff you do, um, that that's when we could see possible blackouts. Just like in third world countries, uh, rolling blackouts. I lived through them when I was in the military in Panama. It was it was a known thing. Two hours a day, every section of the the, the big city there got shut down for two hours because they only had so much power. It wasn't horrible, but it's kind of third world, right? And so we're not building new new electric plants very fast. You know, there's there's a lot of hesitation about nuclear, even though I will tell you the new nuclear plants, I'm a little creeped out by nuclear. I know if it goes bad, it can go really bad. But they've made new designs that are safe shutdowns. And they'll, they'll shut themselves down if there's no humans around to do it. And they, they're much better at it now because they're designed that way. So it's something I think we should use. And it's more reliable than natural gas. I didn't realize that natural gas 
it can freeze up, it can get clogged, and the colder it is, the more likely it is to do that. In fact, even above the freezing point, the, the, the contaminants in natural gas can kind of collect, and then there can be water, and with the pressures, you can have freezing. If you look, if you look at a natural gas well or pipeline, you can see the frost on there. It might be 40 degrees, but there's still frost all over it. These things, because the, you know, when things uh, expand, they cool. The heat of compression, that's, that's a scientific thing. And when things expand, they get cooler. So natural gas lines are not considered that reliable. What is reliable? Coal and nuclear, because that fuel is stored on site and, and it can increase demand, right? So we need, we need to fix this, the, the whole power problem. But the biggest thing is one nuke from uh, North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, whoever, terrorist group, could possibly take down the, all the electric power in the continental United States, right? They'd have to hit Hawaii and Alaska separately, but uh, we don't want to be like a bug on their back with no way to restart. It'll fry our stuff. So, but here's the good news. Texas Senate Bill 1606 is making its way through the Texas legislature. They only meet every two years, by the way, and for 140 days. So if you know a Texan, tell, tell especially their House member, Texas state House reps, to support Senate Bill 1606. It's going to harden the power grid. And hopefully it will get other states to do the same or maybe shame the federal government into doing what they should have done you know, over a decade ago and harden the grid. Because the military, for example, 99% on dependent on civilian power, right? And and Bill did the research to find out that the, the mullahs over in Iran have already given their blessing. That, oh, yes, it's under Sharia law. You can use a nuclear weapon to take out the electricity because it won't hurt anybody directly. It won't. There's not going to be a blast that's going to kill you, but your electricity will go out. You probably won't know why unless you see a big flash. But that's been okay. Why? It's kind of creepy that they asked the question. Um, our, our grid's getting delicate enough all on its own, folks. So you need to get behind Texas Senate Bill 1606. Now, I did promise to tell you how to be the smartest guy in the room, right? So remember I said that the ninth court said that you don't have the right to self-defense? If you want to be the smartest guy in the room on the Constitution, when you hear that kind of stuff, you just start Googling Federalist Papers, Federalist Papers on militia, Federalist Papers on self-defense. And you're going to find that our founding fathers absolutely thought that you have, they called it an original right to self-defense, meaning that it existed before the United States was formed. It's one of those unalienable rights. So they don't have any debate or wonder, question mark. They're not, you know, they're not squishy on if you have the right to self-defense. A cat has claws and a man has a gun, right? That's what our founders thought. But the Ninth Circuit Court couldn't figure that out, right? Or they, they didn't want to. So, you know, please, you want to be the smart guy, look up the Federalist Papers, and you'll know what the founders thought. Thanks for tuning in to Path Forward Utah.